The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome that the law was unable to achieve its end. That is, it was unable to set things right. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian, the podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as what we used to say in those seminary days, theological reflection. And today, we've invited Bradley Mason to reflect theologically, well, and mm, legally, literally, philosophically, logically, with us about critical race theory. It's a conversation that we began, and uh, if you have uh, not seen our initial post, our initial conversation, I encourage you to go back and pick it up. I'll put a link in the, my blog post, the show notes, so that you can catch up. Uh, what we do today is we try to look and explore uh, the origins. Where did this idea, set of ideas, come from? And like uh, the introduction, the introduction before the introduction, it dawned on me that what has spurred critical race theory uh, for you pastors and church leaders is the recognition that the laws enacted to uh, correct uh, the subordinating of races. Uh, after the civil rights movement, they fail to achieve their goal. And so what, the, what arose was this critical question as to, you know, what do we do about that? And how do we uh, assess uh, the laws and the way that the culture absor- was able to absorb these changes and literally to no or lesser effect than what the desire was? So we, we uh, take off out of the gate uh, thinking about uh, what Mason would describe as a seminal essay by Derek Bell. Don't fear, we don't uh, use a lot of, of legal jargon, but instead uh, try to talk through that piece. And then we carry on with a ranging conversation just so you know, this looks like it's going to be a long-term relationship unless one of the other of us decide to break it off, and that doesn't appear to be a thing that will happen anytime soon. So there will be many more conversations as we try to kind of work through some of the ways that we could understand this intellectual, the intellectual history and the legal theory movement that has something to say about our social relationships. And particularly, we're always going to try to, I'm going to always try to draw it back to pastors, how do we think about leading? How do we think about neighbors? How do we think about others? And try to demonstrate that, indeed, the ideas that arrive or arise out of this investigation of the lack of the law is actually a benefit to point to grace. And so, hopefully, um, we'll be pulling some of the heat out and offering a little bit of light, not to make critical race theory uh, the cause of the day or the um, 
be-all, end-all of our need to analyze where we are in our culture and how we can um, view what God is able to do that the law cannot do, but that it is a helpful tool uh, to provide a, a look into things that we've just taken for granted and we assume that, that uh, are no longer issues, and yet, and yet they persist. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bradley, and uh, we'll have a word for you on the other side. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcaster, the pastor, theologian, with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. And we told you we would be back. And we are. I'm back today with Bradley Mason. And uh, we had some scheduling issues, so we're a little bit later than we thought we might be. But all that did was create greater curiosity, (laughs) greater anticipation, and great wonder, would we ever do this again? Well, here we are. We're doing it again, Bradley. One more time. So everyone knows it was my fault, my scheduling problems. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we we put we probably could have found a little bit more time after that if I hadn't been going to be out of town. So it's a combination. We're good. We're all good. Okay. So hey, um, let's 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 kind of roll. You, you know, we had we did set up some expectations that we were going to try to sketch uh, in, in understandable terms. You know what CRT critical race theory is. I want to do it this way. I want you to help us because um, about twenty to thirty years ago when post-structuralism was making its way and the, and the church evangelicals trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. it became apparent that not everybody was talking about it the same way. In other words, everybody kind of had their own little nuanced definition. And what that meant was, for instance, you had some who were talking, well, I'm not talking about academic or philosophical right. post-structuralism. I'm talking about cultural postmodernism, or I'm talking, so there was this, this really yeah. un- inability to really have a good, healthy conversation about what it was, or were there any benefits? Where should we be careful? I feel the same things happen here. And we have a, um, I think you've been following him, sometimes retweeting him. I picked him up because of you, so you're a good influence on me. Uh, he offered three possible definitions the same way. Did you remember, you remember that tweet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. he was, he kind of went through the, th- yeah. what he saw as three ways people are talking about critical race theory. Right. So rather than use, use his sketch, why don't we just like get right to it? If you were going to tell me now, I've, I've read a little bit, but I could be just as much a newbie as the next guy. I I've, uh, I've read, uh, um, most of Bell's essay that in your recent tweet said, um, you, you probably need to read this one. It was the one about um, integration. So the serving two masters or, yes, the or ser- Brown, the, Brown versus board uh, one, I think um, it was the first one. Yeah, probably it's serving two masters. It's the first one in, oh, yeah. in the uh, reader. That's probably the one. Yeah. And the yeah. one thing I, one thing I picked up there was, um, and maybe this will kind of give, a little bit of context for why I think we, we need a good definition is, is that what he seemed to outline, and again, I'm not finished, so there may be some conclusions that I'm drawing that, that are, are, are not, and you can correct me, but um, so there was this move to say we need to desegregate because this, this segregation has been bad educationally uh, in terms of finance and educational outcomes for uh, black children. 
-hmm. And so the ruling was uh, desegregation. And so in my uh, in my in my school district growing up in 1972, Judge Luther Bohannon, he uh, struck down segregation and ordered the desegregation of Oklahoma City Public Schools. Right. So when I start when I start the fourth grade, we are we are, quote, desegregated. But to say we were integrated, according to what Bell's describing, is that that, that didn't happen because what was missing was the funding issue and the educational aim issue. Mm -hmm. So we so so what appeared to be to everybody, we've solved the problem, we've solved the issue, and we right. no longer have segregation. We are now desegregated, but really integration did not occur because the statistically these two things didn't show any sort of improvement indicating that the law was not necessarily helpful is that now you fix me correct me oh, yeah yeah no definitely so as a starting point that um probably two points related to that so um the first the first problem obviously is that the civil rights establishment sort of settled into this, that it was just a, you know, uh, litigation game. Okay, so laws are passed, and we're just going to litigate, 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 you know, all across the country, every school, everywhere we can, until everything's fixed. Um, and what Bell's pointing out is, okay, so what's the goal of that? The, the goal of that can only be, quote, unquote, racial mixing. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't it doesn't actually change the disparities. How are the individuals doing? Is it good for the black community? Are the children getting the kind of education that's promised as a result of just mixing? What is it about, you know, the white school that made it absorb all of the black schools and the black institutions? You know, was it is the assumption that it's superior from the start? There was a lot of things that that touched sort of the formal requirements of integration, but didn't touch what the actual purpose was, or at least supposed purpose, was to, to change the outcomes, right? To, to, to remedy the actual uh, circumstantial situation, not just the legal, formal, written situation. So, so that's one of the major things that um, Kimberly Crenshaw writes about when she talks about Bell is something that, that stirred her and brought all of this to her mind was, was recognizing that for, for Bell, really the, the measure of an anti-discrimination law or a civil rights package was not, did it promise formal equality, right? But did mm -hmm. it actually change the subordinated circumstances of actual people? Mm -hmm. that's, that's how you measure it. So at the end you say, okay, they've got rights and they're mixed. Are, are still poverty? Is there still two different educations happening within the same building, which Bell argues is manifestly the case, mm -hmm. two different uh, ways that the children are policed, even within the same institution, all of those things are still present. So that's the one major thing. And I think that that's why it appears first in, in that reader that you have there, because uh, even in the introduction, the, the editors point out that it's just that one mental shift to where it's like, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is, does anti-discrimination mean that we formally say you can't discriminate and then we wait and see if somebody does? Or does anti-discrimination mean that we're, we need to change the discriminated circumstances, that people mm. are living in two different worlds even in the same institutions? Mm. Mm. Is it, if, the, if the latter, and Bell is saying it's the latter, 
that's that's how you achieve anti-discrimination. That's how you oppose discrimination. You have to change the actual circumstances. So I think that principle move where it actually puts the the real lives of people ahead of just you know the the written code or formal equality is a shift that's very important to the development of critical race theory. Probably you know one of its basic ideas that mm -hmm. plays out elsewhere. The second problem then that develops out of that and you really get this teased out probably by the Alan Freeman article in there as well is that that it also has a legitimizing effect to say, um, well, everything's mixed and discrimination is outlawed. And then you say, well, how, it's still affecting the two groups way differently that this group is still suffering. This group still has all of the power. And then you respond, well, well we've desegregated, we've, we've mixed, um, we, there's formal equality, uh, discrimination is against the law. So whatever discriminatory circumstances that still remain are just, they're moral, they're according to the law. And all that you could do is maybe blame the people involved that they're just not working hard enough for. So not only did, did just the, the principles of formal equality and equal opportunity not change the actual subordinated circumstances of African-Americans by and large, or at least not changing the disparity because even though both groups rise, the disparity remains, mm -hmm. but it also had an effect of, of legitimizing the outcomes, saying, okay, right. last week, that was because of formal discrimination. This week, it's because they're not working hard enough. And the only thing that's in between is the new law, right? Right. right. So I think that's why those, those essays are important to sort of kicking off the discussion, because didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just, you know, some, some uh, philosophers or, you know, professors sitting around coming up with stupid ideas. This came from Bell, who was a litigator, right? He was, that's all mm -hmm. he did for decades. You know, he's in the thick of it from the right. start. And so he's speaking from experience of what is actually good for these people. And that's really the basis of the, the serving two masters is, Mm, there, I think there's an actual moral problem here that myself and everyone that is just litigating these cases to get racial mixing, are we even serving a client anymore? Are we actually serving their needs or are we serving some ideal that doesn't help them or affect them in the long run? So one thing you're suggesting is, uh, for those who are listening, the, the, the popular mantra that wants to now uh, default to the reason for the disparities are uh, on the individual as if this particular legal move uh, set the um, set everyone at the same starting point. Right. And so when we use that, folks, pastors, leaders, when we use that, we're actually playing into uh, a way of thinking that keeps things really as they are, even if a law is changed. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah. So, I mean, well, we have actual cases where, so prior to the 1964 passage, um, that an employer is not allowing advancement for the African-American employees, they're paid less, everything clearly blatant discrimination, right? But it's legal. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next week, it's now illegal. So he no longer discriminates, right? The policy is there's no more discrimination. Of course, he now has some 
some seniority rules in place. He has some tests that need to be taken to make sure you can advance. And over the next decade, there's no change. Mm-hmm. It's identical to how it was, right. right? So early on, the courts were willing to say, whoa, 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 you, you, that you're the same person, this is the same company, you're having the same outcome now as you did when you were um, overtly discriminating, and now you just have other systems. So the, the way we need to look at it is, have the outcomes changed? And the courts did rule that way for a very short period of time after that legislation was passed basically putting it on the employer to prove that the unequal outcomes were, were not related to any obstacles that they had put in any way or any system that they created to disadvantage anyone, right? So, so if I created a test that your advancement, employment advancement was incumbent upon, then if all of the, the, the black applicants were failing and the white ones were passing, the courts for a time said, okay, now you need to prove to us how, how this outcome came about. The onus is on you to justify your test as, as a neutral vehicle for, for determining outcomes, right? So, but as soon, that didn't last long. This is another thing Bell talks about is retrenchment. Mm-hmm. So within short order, the court started rolling back the other way. Well, it's a neutral tra- test. It doesn't mention anything about race. Whatever the outcomes are, are just a product of the people themselves right? Maybe they need more education. We'll work on that, right? And so that's kind of become the norm. But what's interesting is kind of in the period when Bell's writing, it's like he's got one leg in both of those worlds, one mm-hmm. on the left, one on the right. You know, there, there's no way to miss that, that the outcomes are identical. And, and now you all are mentally and emotionally and legally reformed out of racism. And now five years later, your leg's over here, but the outcomes are the same. But you know how we know there's not discrimination? Because it's illegal. And we don't discriminate. Right. That's it. Somebody's got to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. And it sounds very similar to, you know, what happened when they struck down redlining. Right. Redlining got struck down technically by law, but there's great evidence that it just actually, the practice continued. Oh, yeah. And, and, And so it's the same sort of, same sort of thing that you think you're achieving something by law and and really you've you're you're the because of the because of the way the structure works you just find the way out around that right yeah and then and and the one thing that that the law is like i guess the law is not like a person okay right. um the courts mm-hmm. <laughs> let's say are not going to admit is that that they created the problem as well. That's mm-hmm. something that just doesn't get addressed, no. right? Is that they they themselves created the problem. The laws themselves are what created racial hierarchy, right? So like you were saying, it's, it's not just embedded in the society, it's embedded into the legal code yeah. itself and the way race is understood in the legal code, the way property is understood, all of those things are included in there. And so that's that's one of the reasons why uh, early critical race theorists are largely coming out of critical legal studies is because critical legal studies coming from, you know, legal realism and everything right. understood that, okay, law is not just some like system in Plato's heaven that's already perfectly just. And, <laughs> and all you need to do is be unbiased and you can make a ruling on everything like just 
doing math, basically, you know, two plus two equals four. Obviously it does. I don't want to have that debate, but right. that's what, that's what they understood the logic of law to be just, okay, here's a judge. He's reasonable, right? As long as he doesn't have any bias, then the solutions are just a matter of running the engine of the legal code and then answer pops out at the end. Uh, legal realist said, no, you know, we got to look at it like sociologically that more than anything, the law is embedding uh, our current moral structures, our norms. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of, of, of our interests and, and our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just norms, our commitments mm -hmm. as a society are reflected in the law. So in a sense, you look at the law as, as more scientifically, like um, certain events predict other events and how did we get there? And then you have to understand that the law itself is not like separate from politics. It includes politics, all of these things. So they, you know, and this is where the postmodernism and the post-structuralism became really valuable to critical legal studies is because it's very easy to begin to break down the language of the law to say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that, or there's a whole narrative, you know, running underneath the surface when you use all of these specific words. So there, there was many ways to attack and deconstruct legal language to prove basically that the legal realists were correct. And also to, to try to understand how the law itself, while it seemed neutral and an arbiter was preserving a lot of the injustices. And even when it was saying it was ruling them out or making them illegal, it was in a sense carrying through the logic of it. So obviously CLS is, or critical legal studies is a whole other thing, sure. but you can at least see how that becomes an attractive tool sure. to, to, uh, to legal theorists who are sort of the first generation out of Jim Crow. Right. And they're trying to understand why it, the law didn't do what the law said it was supposed to do. And, and wow, it may even be that the law is somehow preserving these circumstances, that maybe even the law now is itself become the justification for preserving the subordinated circumstances of people of color, right? And oh, yeah. so, so having that tool from uh, post-structuralism, you know, some of the postmodern thinkers and critical legal studies became very valuable in, in trying to break that down and interpret that. Now, one of the things, I don't know if we're even going here, but what immediately comes to mind is that, that, that there isn't a direct carryover, right? So when we're talking about uh, Mari Matsuda or uh, Crenshaw, Lawrence, you know, Delgado, all of these thinkers early on, they're still, they're civil rights, right? right. Thinkers, right. okay? Right. So they're, they're not, they can't go over with critical legal studies. What is deconstructing the law into a pile of nothing gonna do for the people who actually suffer? Right. We know you white liberal lawyers don't care. You don't have to worry about this. You know, these rights that are so flimsy and legit, legitimating injustices meant a lot to us, you never even needed them, right? So, so right off the bat, even though they're, you're bringing in sort of the post-structuralism, the, the Frankfurt, you know, the critical tradition, everything through critical legal studies, there's also a stopping point where it's like, okay, we've broken it down, but this does real people who are suffering no good at all. We need a restructuring. 
right? Mm -hmm. A jurisprudence of reconstruction. They, they almost called critical race theory something along the lines of juris, uh, uh, reconstruction and jurisprudence of reconstruction, something like that. Mm -hmm. They were toying with those words early on to describe what they were working on because they came in direct conflict early on with CLS because CLS says, oh yes, we can, we can explain the anti-discrimination law problem and why it's not doing anything. And that's because rights are just another tool of hegemonic control. We told a bunch of people, oh, you have the right to uh, food and shelter, but you don't, you don't actually get it, right? right so, right. so you know, they, they are picking away at some of these conflicts within the law itself that, that there is a problem, but that early dispute with critical uh, race theorists as they started to come out and say, well, you know, wait a minute. Okay, now the rights did allow me to vote, my parents to vote when mm -hmm. we could never vote, you know. So right. there was still a, a tangible element that deconstruction and just postmodernism and just post-structuralism was, was only attractive in as much as it was a tool to get to the point of, of restructuring society to the benefit of people of color and subordinated peoples, right? right? So that marks a major break. And I know Crenshaw writes a lot about that, that, that sort of the, there's alignments that sort of characterize what CRT is, but there's definitional misalignments. There's, there's places where there wasn't that overlap and that connection that really carves CRT out as something different and something special that they do have a reconstructive vision, that it is a civil rights project, that, that though liberalism needs to be questioned and picked away out and the logic needs to prove itself, the egalitarian strain within it is an ideal worth pursuing. Um, that that maybe, maybe the problem with liberalism is not liberalism, but that it's based on the individual as the basic unit rather than a group, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, there, so even the critique of liberalism itself is not, it is not supposed to be entirely destructive, right? Because right. once again, going back to Bell, it's how are we going to make liberalism work for people who are actually suffering, right? Right, is the idea, rather than just legitimize the circumstances that we find in front of us. It sounds to me like there is a common, um, a common mistake, and 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 I don't you know, I don't want to adjudicate, you know, intentional or unintentional, but it seems to be a mistake, for instance. So if, if critical race theorists are really saying, hold, hold on, you know, it, it, you know, breaking things down is really good, but we got, we got to build something back. Deconstruction as a, as a philosophical movement was a reconstructionist idea. De deconstruction never really intended just to break everything down, leave it on the floor. And, and so anytime, you know, we hear people, and I know this is maybe moving a, a little bit away, but I, I think it helps for those who are listening that, so pastor hears uh, someone, a young person, say uh, uh, 30-something, 40-something is going through what they're calling a deconstruction, and the pastor flips out, freaks out, thinks, oh my gosh, they're, they're going to reduce everything down to nothing. They're going to leave all the scraps on the floor and they're going to have nothing left. Well, uh, it, they could actually move in and help and say, okay, listen, I, I, I think you've probably heard some ideas along the way. You right. probably have, you probably have some questions that have resulted because now you're actually looking at the sacred text and with a different lens. And some of the stories that you heard um, 
when you were in the uh, in grade school were told to you in such a way that you could handle it as a grade school person. But really, this thing about Noah, and I mean not Noah, Jonah, for instance, this is, is there, there's really more going on with Jonah than the fact that he got a, got a whale ride. Uh, that right. really is not so now it's like but but wait a minute i thought this was about about a prophet running away from god i mean i how, how do i make sense of this so now we, we're talking about this text and we're trying to tease it out and a pastor could either be helpful and say well, okay let's deal with those questions and let's put something back together so you can see kind of a deeper thing at work because you're right. now ready for that right. um or he could say Oh, I've just got to throw up my hands, and uh, you'll have to figure it out on your own. And 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 too bad for you. And it seems to me that that that's kind of the the way that once critical race theory moved into sort of a a a a flashpoint of conflict. Mm -hmm. That the that the worst possible fears that someone could entertain as to the results of uh, even looking into it, we're going to be so devastating to someone's uh, understanding of the gospel that we have to completely shut off access because there's no possible way that anything that doesn't have a, a root in some sort of uh, evangelical movement, some revivalist tradition, or some mainline history is is utterly taboo to us. Right. And and so and so. Um, maybe you could help help us think. How how do you think that um, got so out of the way? Because reading reading um, Nathan Cartagena's piece in uh, Sojourners, mm -hmm. it, it's clear as he tells um, the permissions he got to teach at Wheaton, and then once this made it into public space, he actually had to rethink how he's going to present it because um, it's like the jury who's who's been tainted by watching television of the event that they're supposed to discern. Right. Mm -hmm. So he had to now present an essay and say, okay, now what do you think about it? Without giving any sort of context and sure, yeah. frame of reference. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they made the same discoveries that they were making prior to that being, um, you know, uh, pitched around in public spaces. Right, right. So where, 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 or, or what do you see as, as a, a, a tipping point where that sort of thing happened? Because I, I read again, I, I, again, I haven't read it all, but, but I read that first bell piece. And then of course I've read all the things that you've written and, and, and a few others. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time here. Right. I'm having a hard time figuring out how did we get there if it wasn't really for the fact that someone came along and said, uh, Calvin didn't say anything about it. Wesley didn't say anything about it. Luther didn't say anything about it. My denomination didn't say anything about it. So, you know, ah, taboo. Can't right. talk about it. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Okay. A multitude of thoughts. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think probably one of the the main things that always come to mind is that I think there is a different, uh, there is a specific and alternate social philosophy that is invisible to us. That is how we think about society, mm -hmm. especially within the church. So we've we've already got that sociological apparatus. 
we have our own understanding of how law works. We have an understanding of how the economy works. We have an understanding of what racism is, how it functions, what it isn't. There's a whole big package and it, it, we didn't learn it from Calvin or the Bible or you know anything else like that. We absorbed it from the culture and our own circumstances. We've been socialized into thinking that way, which is all fine. I mean, that's just how it happens. Um, uh, I mean, it's not fine in that it's morally good. It's just right. each individual didn't create that circumstance for himself. It finds right. himself there. Um, and so when other things come along that challenge that or contradict that, it's it's our previous social philosophy is so close to home, right? Mm -hmm. And invisible mm -hmm. in essence, that 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 the the other alternative sounds like unbiblical heresy because mm -hmm. I know everything I believe is biblical, right? Right, right, uh, right. And then specifically when it comes to race, as I have written about before, largely from Gary Peller, um, sort of covering that history of after the civil rights movement, progressive white Americans in general, like, yes, this is a good idea. You know, we're moving forward. We're good liberal people. Um, you know, we love all races. And, and, and then very quickly, the sort of radical idea that was the civil rights movement becomes very uh, pedestrian and cast into the terms of traditional liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. So, so now it's like um, the the problem is individual prejudice, right? right. So that right. You know, I have right. bad thoughts in my head about someone else, and I need to get rid of those. Okay, so that's the basis of all racism. Now that how does that play out socially? Oh well, uh, segregation, right? So that's how that plays out. But but if we can get rid of segregation and bring everyone together, then those bad thoughts will start to go away. Oh, and the only way that that's ever gonna happen is that you cannot let race count for anything, right? right? It can't figure into decision-making, right. it can't figure right. in the legal code. When you wanna have a remedy, it has to be, you know, think of any other way. Like, sure. okay, we wanna help um, African-Americans, but uh, we can't, because that would be, you know, looking at race and that's racist in and of itself. So maybe we'll just help poor people and hope that that changes the disparity or, right. you know, or we'll help uh, migrant workers as such, you know, rather than acknowledging that there's, there's a whole history of, of, of racializing um, immigrants from the South, you know, can't talk about that because we don't notice that. We can't notice that because we're not racist anymore. You know, we treat everyone as an individual like good liberals. So we have to attack. So in a sense, the the entirety of the message from, I don't know, going back to David Walker all the way through to King himself now gets absorbed into our own categories that we are already riding around with and it fits into there. And it's no longer a problem of white supremacy. It's not a problem of, um, uh, culture-wide uh, social disparities that has to be changed. Now, now it's just another component of our own white liberal tradition, right? And then that's how we understand it. And that's how we understand racism. That's our analytic for looking at it. And we go along like this just fine for decades, right? I mean, we don't live near people of color as it is or go to the same churches or and we know what racism is and racism is awful and evil because it means you hate somebody because of the color of their skin, right? And I don't even see race, 
Okay, so that, that's bad. But now you have someone coming along and saying, I don't know, this country has like kind of been racist from the start and like all of our institutions have included racism and, and you know, the problem is not just, just noticing color or hating someone, you know, and we collapse it into ethnicity. Well, you know, the Italians and the Irish had their issues with, and they, you know, and it's just, oh, it's all the same like that. And they're saying, no, 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 no. it's kind of like more like white supremacy itself, like according to the law, where all the rights were allocated and, you know, right. now that that is not like blowing up my biblical worldview. That is blowing up my good white liberal worldview, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit at all. You're straight up telling me that I look at black people and I hate them because of their skin color. That's, that's the only way I could possibly hear that because I've adopted an analytic created by white people to explain this, this situation, to absorb the civil rights movement, to make it pedestrian, to roll back any of the radical ideas that were starting to be put into place as part of the retrenchment, right? And then we've taken that, that we've absorbed that. And, and, you know, and it wasn't just white people, plenty of, there were African-Americans as well who, who believed the same thing because, you know, for probably different reasons, there's a lot of self-empowerment obviously connected with that idea. Um, um, so yeah, I'm not going to speculate how no. or why or different, why did I just, right. why I adopted it <laughs> and right, why I right. was raised that way and why I think that way. And I think that that's where the, the heresy comes in is there is a social philosophy that I've held to my whole life that I couldn't see at all. It was common sense. It was natural. It was normal. It was part of being a Christian. That's how you thought about the situation. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if that. No. Yeah. I think, no, I, I think, think that's that right. And, and I, I mean, my friend, my, yeah, my friend, Adam Clark, um, he has walked through, you know, the, the verities of that retrenchment, which, you know, um, colorblind racism and, mm -hmm. and, and those sorts of things. And he's, he's, uh, he's a, a black Christian theologian and, and he's talked about those particular issues and, and talks about the way it's just an unseen thing. It's just dissolved into, you know, the well, order as it is. Mm -hmm. it, it, it leaves me thinking that, um, so I, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm stretch may stretch here, but I'm trying to also try to keep maybe trying to find uh, some parallel illustrations so that those who are listening can, can see that, you know, maybe we have missed the boat in the particular responses that we've made to this. And so I remember uh, being introduced to N.T. Wright mm -hmm. and um, talking with some friends who preferred Scottish common sense realism. They were they were realists. And if it just made sense to me, then, you know, it's good. And and and, the, and so we talk about a certain perspicuity of scripture that it's just a plain reading because you got common sense right. and and there's no should be any question. I mean, if you read it the way I read it, we should all agree. I mean, right. the reason we have all these denominations is because you're just not reading it with common sense. Right. right. Along comes along comes someone like N.T. Wright, who writes from an admitted perspective called critical realism. Mm -hmm. And you read his introductory big red book and he lays out, you know, this, this different way of looking at. It. So 
He doesn't outright reject things as real. So he still has a, he's still, you know, playing in the same ball field, but he's like, now we probably need to think about what's going on here that we aren't really necessarily equipped with common sense to understand the cultural context in which these things were occurring. So right. we probably need to unearth and take advantage of uh, all those disciplines, archaeology, uh, um, those, those research subjects that help open us up to Jewish studies a little bit better. Because after all, we're here in 20, 20th century, and you know, white people with common sense ought to be able to read the Bible and get it, right? Right. right. Well, man, you talk about stir. I, you know, I had a friend who, uh, <laughs> who, who was you know, being, being brought up on, on charges in the PCA and 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 uh, other others who were just outright rejecting anything and and i'm not here to say uh um nt right was correct i'm simply drawing the parallel of the sort of resistance that occurs when things as they are are viewed as common sense that right. it's just a plain reading and then you come along and you go oh wait a minute Th this dawned on me recently actually as, as a as a way to kind of maybe use a um pericope in scripture to, to point that out in in acts 8 uh, uh we're getting the expansion of the witness mm -hmm. to samaria and the ends of the earth all wrapped up in chapter 8 so the outline uh jesus gives you're going to be my witnesses in these localities and and in the first part of chapter 8 philip has gone to samaria mm -hmm. and astounded because he comes across Simon the magician. And Simon, you know, wants to purchase the power that he sees at work. And upon uh, witness and persuasion, the magician believes in Jesus and is baptized. But we get Simon's name and we get his vocation, Samaria. Right. The last part of chapter eight is the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't get his name. Why do we get Simon's name in Samaria, but we don't get the Ethiopian's name in that particular story? We get Peter, as it were, dropped in out of the air, intercepting a chariot and taken away to Azotus as though he's just lifted up and and mm -hmm. removed. Right. But what we get is we get uh, uh, an Ethiopian who's a eunuch, who is a uh, high level in Kandake or Candace's court. And that this is probably the Nubian Empire, which is, doesn't show up on any map. You have to go look through um, documents uh, produced by Greeks and Romans to find out that, oh, wait a minute, this actually has a connection all the way back possibly to the Queen of Sheba and references to Cush in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right. But you've got this figure only known by his geography, his a physical embodied condition, mm -hmm. his wealth. Now, look, I'm no genius, but that sure sounds like an intersectional kind of episode because the emphasis wasn't on his name, but the emphasis upon how he had been treated. Right. And so when he's reg regarded as someone who's uh, the uh, he, he's uh, among the people of burned skin, burned yeah. by the sun. Yeah. I mean, listen. When I grew up, this was just a cool story of magic, right? <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't a Sunday school teacher from the time I was uh, heard that story in in grade school till I was in college right. that made any substantive move about 
being perceived to be the end of the earth, which is what they refer to. That's the reference. That was the end of the earth. Right, right. Yeah, well, makes- until someone comes along and says, did you notice what Luke is really doing? He's mm-hmm. also actually undermining the Roman Empire by suggesting, by the time you look at the research, that Rome wasn't actually the most powerful empire. It's just right. the one that happened to be oppressing uh, Israel and Jews at the time. Right. Yeah. Pull that, pull that old New Testament out and dig that out, yeah. Mr. Common Sense Realism, right? right. right. So right. now you come along and you say those things. And now, I mean, you're, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This really is a story about telling the gospel so that we explain from the Isaiah scroll who's being talked about so that this man can be baptized. So then he can become kind of the missionary. So he's completely utilitarian in, in, in terms of how we read it with common sense. Mm-hmm. We, but for, we vest it with all the details. It's like, oh, wait a minute. This actually has some significant implications for our day and how we other people, based on their geography, but, but the condition of their body and their, their social uh, economic status. Right. Boom. It seems like that's really what we're afraid of, that any critical uh, look at the conditions that we would call normal or status quo, Mm-hmm. Or under threat anytime someone comes along to suggest, you know, that civil rights thing that happened, it really didn't do anything because the structure and order of things found a way to absorb it into its orbit such that it could recreate it in such a fashion that, well, we handle that dodgeball. Now let's time to move forward and let's just keep things as they are because, listen, I don't see color. Yeah. So, so it seems to me that there's a little bit of a, a tracking parallel here, uh, the way we uh, are become so beholden to the things as they are and forget, we forget principally that the gospel is actually addressing the problem with the things as they are. Right, right. Yeah. So is that a, is that a fair kind yeah, of? Yeah, I think so. And, and that also brings in, you know, the idea of, of differing voices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, sure. Right, as you point out, because a lot of those things can be can be common sense and obvious to someone in a different time, different place, um, and different culture. But absolutely, <laughs> uh, that's absolutely yeah. right. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so do you think uh, all that to say this, all that long thing to say that it seems that we're hung up on critical, that we don't like things as they are being criticized particularly if we are kind of settled into the benefits thereof. But I think it's also the race. Sure, sure. I think that's a a major, I mean, because that's that's part of the idea that that's that's woven in. Yeah, but if I, I, yeah, I guess the thing that I have in mind, though, is, is if I'm operating within the system that's absorbed all the objections to the uh, subordinating, um, relationships right. right then then the thing that that for me is wait what are you talking about race yeah we we, we don't have that. that so so yeah solve that problem so quit being critical of me so okay. it's doing that that's kind of what i meant no i i completely agree race is the issue it, it is yeah. still we're still so dealing we, with we've it we've come up with a a system that ameliorates it and covers over it and makes me feel okay about it and don't pick at that yeah 
Yeah. 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 I, I met, I met a state Senator, uh, George Young, uh, working with the uh, Oklahoma uh, Education Association, which was uh, at the time, it, it still exists, but it was a, a lobby. And we were asked to come uh, put on clergy educators conferences. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of on a steering committee team, but I got to know George. George is, uh, was for years, for several decades, uh, a pastor on the northeast side of Oklahoma City, which is historically uh, considered uh, the where the African-American population has gathered and lived. Okay. And and we we just have developed we developed a friendship. He came out and preached just days before his wife died. Recently, he's on the floor of the uh, uh, the state Senate. He moved from being a House representative to a Senate senator for that for his district. And he makes an appeal and he essentially says uh, what, what I'm what I'm thinking. We adopt uh, a state fiber. And we're the only state in the country that has a state fiber. Huh. I didn't know if you know. Yeah, only uh, like fiber? like fiber. Yeah, like. Like uh, uh, wool and and, and, okay, and cotton, you. right? So we got it. We had a state fiber. Yeah. Uh, wow. It was it was it was promoted and brought up by some students at a rural rural school where there's a lot of cotton, but there was no adult available to say. Now listen, the symbol of cotton in the South carries yeah. with it a particular sensitivity and sensibility. Yeah. And so. All of them are thinking, oh, we're helping these young people understand how legislation works and we're passing something. It's fairly innocuous. This is their idea. And we'll do anything to help the kids understand our form of government. Right. Well, right. he got he get you know he, he gets up in grew up in Memphis and 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 was there when as a young man when uh, uh, King was assassinated, and he's done he's done every job associated with uh, cultivating cotton. And he's like, listen, do, 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 we're, we're still, we're, how are we doing this? Right. Everybody else is in the system. Like, Oh, we're just yeah. helping. We're just helping young people learn the form of government. Nobody right. there to say, yeah. wait a minute. This is part of our history. Yeah. Why don't we think about something else? Yeah. And, and, and I, and, and that's where I think that you, what you've described is illustrated where we've got a system that's absorbed things, churned them out. And now comes along someone who says, so I'm sure there are those who think George is just off his rocker. Why just get over it with that though. You don't live in Memphis anymore. It's done. You know? right. But every time he texts me, he texts me as brother. And never anything else. Today's my birthday. And he says, he, he posts on my Facebook wall. He says, brother. So, so, you know, he's really trying to take a positive approach. I don't know how he does it. Honestly, he's trying to take a positive approach in the midst of a, an environment that is clearly, clearly, I mean, we pass a house bill 1775. I sent that to you, you know, yeah. Here yeah. we are. Can't teach critical race theory. Governor signed it just a few days ago. So I'm like, wait, you don't even know what you're talking. Yeah, you don't even know what you're talking about. No. And then I get back a, uh, and I and I like my I like my senator representative, but but I about I get back from one of them, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you know sending me. I send him your stuff and several others and a couple podcast our podcasts and 
And, and it's like, you know, I just, I just think, you know, we don't, we don't want anyone discriminated again. And I'm like, whoa, time out. Like as if that isn't like a thing. Uh, yeah. So now we're going to tell people we can't talk about the thing that creates the problem that we're actually trying to sweep under the rug. Right. 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 Yeah. So, and the remedy is considered discrimination now that we have a new neutral. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I think it was, it wasn't you, uh, you or somebody I saw, uh, you know, made the point that, you know, folks aren't asking to turn it upside down and really asking, let's all get the same seat at the table. Yeah. In other words, this isn't like we need a, need a, that's what's, it was maybe as a poor choice. Uh, but th th I think that's what got got lost in the defund the police. Mm -hmm. It is not really an interest to defund the police. It wasn't, it wasn't really an interest to do away with police funding or policing, yeah. but it's that there are certain issues that now we're aware of that right. police actually need some assistance to handle things that they're actually not trained to handle a right. la mental illness. Right. So the whole idea was to, how don't, why don't we kind of allocate out of our budgeting some money to help, as a, a parallel uh, entity that is assisting police to handle de-escalation when mental illness is, is the issue mm -hmm. and I'm not trained for it. Right. People do not come to me to have their gallbladder out, Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> I have a doctor in front of my name, but listen, that, that is not, that is just not happening. Right. Right. Well, and even, even on the more extreme uh, in that case, there are people who, want to defund the police entirely sure. Sure. But, but what they mean thoughtful people is i want to start from the perspective of how do we get to know police right rather than start from the perspective of what makes for civil society and community is a lot of people with a lot of guns making sure everyone follows the rules right mm. so right. there's actually a comparison of visions even mm. you know wow. within yeah. within the statement so yeah. I know we're not there and we're not going to get there, but I want that to be my social ideal for my community mm -hmm. rather than, than the in-group, out-group ideology of, right. of my community, which is yeah. what, you know, policing, fortunately or unfortunately, no matter what, it's what it's representative of is sure. society defines its norms and its boundaries and locks away everyone who they're not comfortable fits in with that group i mean that's that's sure. the heart of it sure and we and we, yeah. and we haven't even and we, this needs to be maybe something about our next conversation but you know we haven't even got to the place at where the structure of the legal system and the uh, punishment phase of that has been dispensed inequitably oh yeah certainly and so yeah. critical race theory is is a is a is a part of that particular ciphering. How do we filter through those, um, that code right. in such a way that we ferret out and pull out those instances where we are, and some of those are unspoken. Yeah, yeah. and then some of, some of how I think that we get there and what's interesting about critical race theory, and I know we're probably coming to the end here, which would kind of put this off, is that I think that that there is a way to, to explain it that's sort of a historical narrative, right? Where you can walk through it and you can say, this happened, this happened, the civil rights movement, Bell taught this, this happened at Harvard, this happened at 
UCLA, this happened at the CLS conferences. And then, so then these people met together, but you know, you get right, the right, narrative, right, right. right? And then there's probably a, a, an intellectual history, mm -hmm. right? So then we're gonna go back and we're gonna say, well, this didn't appear out of nowhere. Um, the traditional civil rights and abolitionists always knew that race was a product of exploitation, not vice versa. So mm -hmm. they've taken it up, you know, so there's that path. But then there's also uh, sort of an analytical approach, right? Where you take, okay, well, here is sort of the loose broad entity and what are some of the commonplaces or quote unquote tenants inside of it? And, and do they actually represent a theory? Is there some coherence, some necessity connecting them right into to an ideological package. Obviously, we don't want to push any of those two terms too far because sure. especially CRT scholars are not going to be happy locking it down that tight. Yeah. Um, but I think going back to what you said, when we do come to it analytically, there is something about beginning with the idea of the social construction of race mm -hmm. that goes directly to what you're talking about. So. Um, if we in the future are going to go into actual commonplaces or tenets, I don't know if you know, I like to say commonplaces, it goes back to our theological yeah. way of looking at things, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and to me, tenets, I don't know, commonplaces just means most of the people right. pretty much agree these would be the topics that would fit. Right. Um, so something like the social construction of race, which we could talk about in detail, is, is that if race is not an out there thing, it's not biological, it wasn't discovered by scientists, the, right. the, the colonists didn't say, oh, we figured out that there's, you know, five races or whatever, right? right? That it was constructed, it was made, right. and it was right. made for a reason. And in mm -hmm. a context, there was purposes for it. It was inherently hierarchical. Yeah. It was a justification system for, for colonialism, for exploitation, exploitation. And it goes, Way back, I was reading uh, Cedric Robinson recently, and he he pointed out how they used the curse of Ham in the like 13th, 12th century to explain why the white peasants were lower than the white lords, right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I need to dig that one out because that's the first yeah. time I'd ever heard that before. Yeah. Um, but anyways, nevertheless, so you're creating different types of people yeah. to justify different social relations, right? particularly in hierarchy, right? Yeah. And so, and then those things develop over time, right? Didn't happen in one day. You see, you can see the evolution and the development of, of, of Negro as opposed to white, which were terms that weren't thrown around early on in the colonies, but pretty soon became a legal basis for distribution of rights and protections, right? right. Um, and then this is all developing as the basic institutions of government are developing, as the university systems are developing, as the churches in America are developing, right? All of those are coming up together, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that embedded in the very idea that race is socially constructed, it happened in contingently in a historical fashion, it happened in history, it happened over time. There was a purpose at, for its development um, and it was hierarchical is really a central step to seeing almost all of the other commonplaces that would be involved. It's easy for me to say then it's embedded in our basic social institutions. Right. And I can show that because I can show how they were integral, that, that our understanding of property had something right. to do with including humans and how that would work.
right? right. Our, our, our uh, mortgage system, right? Um, right. Uh, Security-backed mortgage system is like, came from slavery. Like there, and that's not like it's just polluted because it was with slaves, but some of the logic of the system is connected with the construction of races. Um, an idea like, like differentiate, differential racialization, that different races are racial, racialized in different ways, mm-hmm. obviously makes sense because yeah. it's for different purposes at different times and right. to accomplish different ends. Intersectionality makes perfect sense because obviously men and women were useful in different ways and, you know, and poor people as opposed to rich people were, right. race was constructed differently for those different classes of people so we know that can't be separated, right? Right. So they kind of can see that whole system develop once we get that idea. And then that then justifies and makes sense of the law being the starting point for this movement. Why CRT comes from the law is not an accident because one of the central things that was discovered is that the legal code had constructed race. Mm-hmm. That even when it was trying to get rid of racism, it kept redefining race again, right? Right. It would create an idea of race in order to de-recognize race. Whatever it was up to, it was constantly producing and embedding even deeper the racial ideology and, and racial hierarchy. And which is why I think it's central to, to begin with CRT as a legal movement to understand what's going on. So I didn't want to yeah. go too far. No. I'm just trying to point out that, yeah. that like you're talking about, the, these these are not uh, abstractions, very mm-hmm. empirically based, mm-hmm. right? right? And and there is sort of a center to it. And and what I think is interesting is because we can go to Founders Ministry right now, and they're going to agree that race is socially constructed. But I think we can draw the, the implications of that out. How did it happen? When did it happen? Why did it happen? What was the purpose? How did it produce through time? How 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 did it relate to other racial? You know what I mean? That yeah. That there's there's something there something that we all talk about that has a whole lot of meaning within within understanding CRT and the legal system itself. And that I think and I and that I think is a fantastic point because uh, you know truthfully when. When we can say uh, in sort of a summary fashion, so in a summary fashion to say uh, race is socially constructed. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're drawing, we're making a summary statement. Well, someone can glom onto that and then use it any way they want to without the history behind it and the implications that are um laid bare when you go to look at its development because while 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 uh, you have described kind of a a a social progression and all of the ways uh that and which i think is probably maybe the best fascinating thing for us to 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 plan next but i think i think it 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 is actually at least i think uh, associated with an intellectual history I, I know you you pulled them apart, but the truth is, these these particular ideas were were driving the social movements. Right. Oh, yeah. They weren't they weren't just they weren't just kind of emerging. If I if I were setting out to accomplish all that you described, mm-hmm. even down to the uh, varied racializations, that is, and, and boy, you 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 opened a good one there because. It, 
man, that's chasing a rabbit. Um, the, 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 the point, though, would be that these things, um, by implication, when you, when you chase down their intellectual history and how they get worked out socially, then there are some things that come alive to us, not just singularly when we're talking about um, black, white, Oh, we okay. we could be talking about we can about uh, Italian uh, Italian Catholics or uh, Hispanics or the Spanish or you know I I met a guy this past week in a, a small conference and he's in New Mexico and he's like listen there are Spanish descendants and then there are Mexican right. descendants you yeah. better not confuse the two. Right, right. Well, racialization is had there, there's right. part of what you're describing and it, it shows right. up in a variety of ways. And that is because the levers, yeah. <laughs> whatever they were, were yeah. being, being orchestrated in such a way to advantage a hierarchy. Yeah, even Douglas talks about it with Mexico and uh, Du Bois talks about it with Mexico. He, uh, Ian Haney Lopez in an article I really like kind of goes into it like, that you could see it develop like, okay, there's Mexico, it's a neighboring republic, we're cool with them, whatever. Um, there's there's black people there, there's white people there, whatever, right? And then as soon as like, you know what, we need to extend a little beyond Texas, we need some more of this, there's a lot of arable land there, we can grow a lot more cotton, right? So then all the rhetoric starts amping up and it's like, you know, those, those lazy people down there, they don't know how to run their own government. They come into to our land and they steal, steal our properties. And, you know, now this whole engine's beginning where right. now Mexican is a people group right? that it never was before in the American consciousness. There was just different people there. Right. And then you start to attribute specific ideas of what it means to be Mexican and, and, and it develops as part of, you know, I'm going to take over their land, right, <laughs> you know, but right. I don't think it's, it's not obviously not one guy doing that. Sure. The way social movements and, and, and Frederick Douglass even talks about, like, you can just see it in the papers, you know, when we're going to attack a nation, because you just see how they become described over and over and increasingly yeah. within. And then the same happened with the Japanese, right. And the run up to world war two, uh, Du Bois talked all about, like, we're definitely going to war with Japan. Everyone, They've racialized the Japanese into this horrible, it's obvious what we're going to do here very soon. Yeah. And we've racialized the Middle East. I, oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, this is, this is, this is. And it yeah. carries with it. It's, it has an, a, a, an, an ideology embedded within it. That's mm -hmm. the thing. Right. And then right. how it's treated in law when we pass something like a Patriot Act or something based on the idea of certain groups of people that are, you know, subversive by their very country of origin or nature mm -hmm. or something, right? But it's colorblind, but but there's a logic embedded in there. And mm -hmm. we know what it is. And it, and it was created in history. And we have to historicize these things in order to understand what they mean. Just like when you pointed out when you bring up cotton, right? So that's that, that's one of the problems with this is that we may not be overtly racist, but we may be subconsciously racist, but even worse, we may devalue people so much that it doesn't come to our minds that there's any problem. Right. And that's a totally different thing. Wow. I don't have enough value on these people's lives in order to wow. for that to catch my attention. Wow. That's a whole other level Wow. that we're yeah. all riding around with yeah. to yeah. some degree. Yeah, so, no, 
No. That's how we determine a racist act is there's logics within our understanding of people groups. There's logics embedded within our law. There, there, um, and some acts everyone sees, you know, Floyd with the, the knee on his neck, right? right. Dehistoricize that, separate that from our history, separate that from the way our consciousness work. And it's the mean guy who killed right. somebody. Right? right. Right. But but when we when we bring in the history of policing, when we bring in the social context, the you know, the the crazed drug addict that's strong, you know, superhuman, right. You know, right. all right. of these things, and then add in at last my own implicit devaluation of life that isn't exactly like mine. Right. You can see the racial nature of the oh, crime. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, so let's uh, let's let's make plans that uh, we'll we'll set schedule again and let's talk about um, uh, race as a social construct and and we'll depend on you to kind of help us with the some of the intellectual things as well as as well as the descriptive pieces that actually become economic uh, yeah. really at, at their heart. I mean, I. I uh, I know nobody likes it when, you know, we essentialize a particular thing or totalize a, a thing. But but the truth is, is is it's very hard to separate out economics right. from from what we're talking about. I mean, just terribly, terribly. I mean, they, it's avarice. The slave knew it was avarice. Yeah. It yeah. was at the bottom it, of his predicament. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, let, let's make that a plan. We'll we'll schedule it, folks. We'll we'll uh, we'll do that. And hey, listen, folks. If if you'll send some questions in, uh, th- uh, as long as as long as Bradley's going to make time for me, I am going to pick his brain. We are going to have these conversations because, really, th- these are some important issues. And and while you know th- th- they have a place in certain academic circles and in in certain legal cir- circles i think they're important for the church um because they actually help us to tease out some of the the ways that we have actually um uh, pulled the stunt of asking jesus who is my neighbor all the while being able to absorb into our system those who we just don't even think about being our neighbor. Right. And, and the, and, and that is, that's where there's some practical um, resonance for what we do in church life, that we have a way to dehumanize and we don't even know we're doing it. And, uh, and so I, I hope that that's, that you're, you're, you're listening in, you're paying attention, that you're not just out to see if we can counter some art article or argument on Twitter. Um, that's not the agenda. It is, there's some things that, that we need Christians to be Christian about. And there are some issues here that we would not otherwise recognize. That's uh, my opinion. I agree. Very important. All right. Well, as always, Bradley, thank you. We'll we'll set up again and set up another time to have a chat. And and this one's gonna, th- folks. This is gonna drop sooner than later. Uh, this could come out as early as next day. Nice. Uh, so uh, uh, we'll get this out. And uh, if you're so, if you're hearing this on the week of my birthday, you know that we thought <laughs> this was important enough to drop quickly. So nice. there you go. Well, happy birthday again. Thanks, man. It's always good to chat with you. I look forward to more. Yep, definitely. Thank you. 
Hey, I want to thank you for listening to our podcast here at Pathological and remind you that uh, you could run over to iTunes and give us a four or five star rating or even leave a review. It helps us continue to get found. And if you found this podcast helpful, then would you do us a favor and share it on your favorite podcatcher? Uh, no matter what that version is, and let your friends, uh, pastor friends, those in church leadership, those really even just interested in what is all the legislation about, what are all the tweets about, what is really at work when you hear or read someone talking about CRT or critical race theory. And we hope to be providing uh, uh, at least some help and understanding And then form your opinion uh, as to its usefulness. So as we mentioned, we'll be having uh, further conversations with Bradley. We'll next time pick up with some of these social implications, social groupings, race as a social construct, and uh, talk about that and the ways that that shows up and and then maybe what what we can do about it and how we can connect God's grace with the circumstances that we find in these places and spaces. So... Until next time, I want to thank you for listening and remind you this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace.